The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Treasury of the True Dharmai Cohen Collection. Dawus, alive or dead? The main Cohen. Dawu visited a family with Jeanwan for a condolence call. Jeanwan tapped the coffin three times and said, alive or dead? Dawu said, I won't say alive, I won't say dead. Jeanwan said, why won't you say? Dawu said, I won't say. I won't say. Jeanwan couldn't understand at the time. Later, he heard the Avalokiteshvara chapter of the Lotus Sutra being chanted. It said, For one who has attained the monastic body, Avalokiteshvara appears in the monastic's body and expounds the Dharma. Hearing this, Jeanwan came to realization. The commentary. <clears throat> Even in his not saying, Dawu has said it all, but Jeanwan doesn't know that it is right in his face. Later, hearing a workman chanting the Avalokiteshvara chapter of the Lotus Sutra, Jeanwan suddenly realizes Dawu's compassionate teaching and says, at the time I was wrongly suspicious of my late teacher. How was I to know that this was not a matter of words and phrases? If you call it alive, you'll have negated the fact. If you say dead, you've missed the truth of the matter. To say it's neither alive nor dead, or both alive and dead, compounds the matter. At just such a time, what will you call it? <clears throat> Dalroshi's verse. In birth, not an atom is added. In death, not a particle is lost. Therefore, life is called the unborn. Death is called the unextinguished. <clears throat> Good morning. So we began the morning celebrating the birth of the Buddhas, of the Buddha, and now Dawu is alive or dead. <clears throat> We've been studying this pointedly all ago, birth and death. The things that Buddhism and Buddha Dharma brings to our attention, we can trust are the things that are understood to be what we should study, what we should examine, the things that are essential to understanding our life and living it without creating and experiencing suffering. And our attitude, whatever that might be, towards death, our own, the death of others, has a lot to do with how we live, because even though we're, as we live, we are not dying and we're not dead, we're living, <clears throat> that question, the great question, the great matter of life and death, sits within us. And now we may, it's there. And how we understand life and death is pretty much going to be how we live it because we live out of our understanding. That's why the right understanding is the first the Eightfold Path, to from the very beginning of practice to establish how should we be understanding things. 
And the important thing, I was having a mondo with the New Zealand Sangha last night, and there's that part of the Nibbana Sutta where the Subhadda comes to the Buddha right before his death and wants to ask a question about how do I discern whether all of these various teachers leading, leading all these different communities understand, do they, are they enlightened? Do they understand the real nature of things? And the Buddha basically says, unless it's the Eightfold Path, then they're not going to be able to lead their students to these various stages of their development that will lead them to enlightenment, which can sound a little like, you know, I've got it, and they don't. But how else could we understand it, given that the Buddha's enlightenment enlightened him to the emptiness of any sense of ego or self or aggrandizement and so on? Well, the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, right understanding, right intention, right speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration, is the Eightfold Path of Buddhism that the Buddha taught. But those are really, if we think about it, those are just right in accord to what? In relationship to what? What we could say in relationship to the Dharma. But the Dharma is really just a reporting or uh, a pointing to the way reality is, what reality is, how things actually work. Not because we want them to work that way, but how they work. Because if we want to be in accord in our lives, we have to be in accord within and without. So we have to know how do things actually work, which really means what are things. And so the Eightfold Path, in that sense, is really just pointing to how to understand, how to have intention, how to speak, how to act, how to conduct our livelihood, and so on, in accord with reality. And when we're doing that, we're moving in harmony with the nature of things. And that's not the Buddha. That's the world. The Buddha taught it. And so how we understand life and death, it's not just a philosophical matter. It's not really ultimately how does Buddhism understand it, but how is it, in fact? Dogen in the fascicles we're studying says, it's a mistake to suppose that birth turns into death. Birth is a phase that is an entire period of itself with its own past and future. And for this reason, in Buddha Dharma, birth is understood as being beyond birth. Death, too, is a phase that is an entire period of itself with its own past and future. And for this reason, death is understood as being beyond death, beyond the idea, beyond the concept, beyond a philosophy. It's a living thing. It's an entire period unto itself, one moment after the next. And so Dogen goes on to say, in birth there is nothing but birth, and in death there is nothing but death. Accordingly, when birth comes, face and actualize it. When death comes, face and actualize it. Don't avoid them. Don't cling to them in desire. And sometimes people will cite this kind of a teaching and say, oh, that's how Zen understands death. When you die, just die. It's a period unto itself. It's not just Zen. It's certainly Mahayana Buddhism. It's true, and it's true however we might think about or feel about rebirth. And so, 
The Dharma teaches that it's a mistake to suppose that there is a self, a person, a life, a being that is appearing and disappearing in every moment and that has rebirth from life to death. So Dogen says it's a mistake to suppose that birth turns into death. He likens it to the seasons. Spring does not become summer. Night does not become the day. Which means we really have to understand and examine what do we mean actually when we use that kind of language. Something becomes something else. Something is something, and then it becomes another something. What kind of reification, solidification, identity, self-existence are we giving that? And so Dadaroshi in his poem says, In birth, not an atom is added. In death, not a particle is lost. This is why life is called the unborn and death is the unextinguished. In this koan, it seems kind of straightforward. They're going to pay a condolence call. Someone in the sangha has died. Jean Wan is attending Dawu's teacher. They get there. There's the coffin. The deceased person is in the coffin. And Jean Wan taps it three times and says, alive or dead? Why does he even ask that question? The footnote to that says, if you wish to understand the question of life and death, you must enter the arena of life and death. Well, we could say, is there anyone not in that arena? We could say everyone is, but that doesn't mean we know that we're in that arena. We don't yet see it. We're not yet asking. When I was younger, a teenager, I had an uncle who was not an overly nice person, but he was my uncle. And he was getting ready to retire. He'd worked for a chemical company starting out right after high school, you know, just doing whatever, and worked his way up to some middle management level. And he'd worked there for 40 years. And he was getting ready to retire. And I said, Uncle Bob, how does that feel? You've been there so many years. Is it like kind of painful leaving this place, these people that you've worked? He goes, God, no. He says, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. Now I really get to live. And within a year, he was dead. Cancer. And he did not acknowledge that he had cancer, that he was dying all the way into his last breath. He fought it. He denied it. It was not happening. It was not going to happen. He was in the arena, but he was not having it. We could also say that there are only a few that are in that arena. The ones who see, the ones who ask, the ones who are willing to turn towards what is difficult. And that's why in entering the path, there's entering the mountain gate. There's, in our sangha, a process for actually entering consciously and saying, I, I want to step into this circle of dharma. I want to step into this way of practicing and training. I want to open my eyes. They're partly open, and so I'm knocking on the door, but I want them to be open. If we're not asking, then there's nothing that needs to be examined, nothing to be to resolve. And that's why in the, in the Dharma, the Dharma is based on the, on the acknowledgement that there is a matter at hand. 
The question of life and death is a vital matter we chant every night. If we're not asking, then that arena of life and death can seem to remain in the background strangely out of view until, for most, inevitably something pierces that veil. And so Yan Wu says, Yan uh, Wan says, alive or dead? And Daroshi says in the commentary, if you call it alive, you'll have negated the fact. There's a corpse. If you say dead, then you've missed the truth of the matter. What is that truth? Because there is a corpse. To say it is neither alive or dead or both alive and dead compounds the matter. What will you call it? And that's a way of asking the question. It's not about calling it something. Okay, don't call it alive, don't call it dead, call it something else. It's not about what we call it. It's the question of what is this? What is this? If it were self-explanatory, self-evident, if it were immediate, if Buddha nature exists within each of us right now, completely, then why hasn't everybody gotten the news? <laughs> why are we living that? We want to experience our lives, but what is experience? What does that mean, to experience something? Dogen talks about undivided activity. And why does that matter? Why does the question of what is this moment of experience matter? When Jean-Wan asks that question, he's revealing that he's in the arena. He understands there's something going on here. Otherwise, he wouldn't ask the question. He would just say, oh, there's a dead person. But he says, alive or dead. He knows that it's just not just as it appears, but he doesn't fully understand yet what it is. And not understanding what that is, is the same as not yet understanding what this is, because they're not dual. One of the nuns of the Buddha, Samana, who was a sister of King Pasanadi, who was one of the great patrons of the Buddha, a person of a lot of influence, early in her life heard the Buddha teaching and was converted, wanted to study with him. But I think she was married, and so she couldn't leave home. But then her husband died, but she couldn't leave because she was responsible for taking care of her grandmother. So for many years, she took care of her grandmother. But all that while she was practicing as a lay student. And once her grandmother died, then she was able to ordain. She was at quite a, a ripe age at that point. But because she'd been practicing, she came to enlightenment. And on that realization, she wrote a poem. Once you see a suffering, even the basic bits that make up everything, then you won't be born again. Calm is how you will live once you regard the desire, discard the desire for more lives. Once you see a suffering, even the little bits that make up everything, which we could think of as like all of the minor irritations and annoyances and, you know, things that we just live with. But it's suffering. When we see that even those minor bits, those basic bits that make up everything, when we understand them, what are they? 
What is this? What is my experience? Because that's what Buddhism is trying to liberate. Recognizing that the world, people, living things, inanimate things, are all in and of themselves in a natural state of peace. In and of themselves are in a natural state of peace. But when we interact, things happen. And so it's our perception of things that Buddhism is bringing our attention to in a singular way. Because that's all the only way we know there is a world and what the world's made of. And that's the basis from which everything we do comes forth. And so he asks this question, Jiang Wan, is this alive or dead? And Dabu says, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. Now it's incumbent upon a teacher that when a student asks a question, an important question, the teacher responds. That's the vow that they take. But how do they respond? What do they respond? This is how Dao responded. I won't say alive, and I won't say dead. Remember in that Nibbana Sutta where the Buddha is praising Ananda, his attendant for many, many years. And one of the ways he praises him is saying that he was, he was a good teacher. That when he taught the Dharma, people really got a lot from it, really resonated with his teaching. And that, the Buddha, that Ananda would always fall silent before the student or that assembly of students were satisfied. Before they were sated, he would fall silent. And such a simple little passage, just a few words, but it's very important what that's communicating. That if the teacher says too much, it's actually said that if the teacher says too much, their eyebrows fall out. Now, sometimes that happens just through old age. <laughs> just saying. Or maybe, I don't know, you don't know. So there's this caution about saying too much, presenting too much, filling in the gaps, explaining too much, trying to do it for the student. Not trusting that the student already knows, already has that capacity. And that you're really trying to help the student understand that. And the Zen teachings are very sort of good representatives of that basic principle. Before you're sated, fall silent. So Dawu says, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. And as Dadaroshi says, even in his not saying, Dawu has said it all. He did say. He said, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. The footnote says, hearing the question, he compassionately responds. But say, what does it mean? Not only did he respond, but he compassionately responded. Compassion is, in Buddhism is based in not just selflessness, but in understanding that everyone has Buddha nature. Everyone has the capacity, and not just the capacity, but the... the um, they have to do it for themselves. It's not just that we are capable of enlightening our own minds, but we are the only ones who can, right? You can't make someone else let go. I can't make you sit here and listen. On that basic level, I can't make you listen, right? Only you can do that. And how you listen 
is up to you. Now, I have a little bit to do with it, right? So if what I say doesn't speak to you or is dull or boring or uninspired, then maybe I deserve not to be listened to. So it's not that there isn't something going on here, but we ourselves are the ones who have to step forward. And in a, a bodhisattva manifesting compassion understands that deeply. And they are responding to the situation as they understand it in that moment. What is this person capable of? When Subhadda came to the Buddha right before he died and said, I have a question, and Ananda said, no, no, don't bother him. He's dying, for God's sake. And the Buddha said, no, it's okay. Because he's going to ask a question about the Dharma, it doesn't bother me. It's not bothersome. And he will understand what I say. How did he know that? And in fact, when he responded, Subhadda said, I want to be your disciple, and became his last disciple. And so part of that compassion is understanding, to the best of one's ability, what is the present capacity of this person. Their fundamental capacity is as a Buddha. But in this present moment, what can they hear? What will they hear? What will they do with it, what they hear? And so Dharoshi says, has said it all. In birth to face and actualize birth, in death to face and actualize death. It seems like Dogen is creating a duality. Is he? At the time of realization, there is nothing but birth, totally actualized. Nothing but death, totally actualized. Is that creating a duality? Or in that moment of totally actualized, is everything present in birth? In the moment of death, totally actualized, is everything present in death? If they are non-dual, not two, it must be so. That's what we're actually trying to see directly. How is that so? What is that? You know, the whole challenge of practice, of having great aspiration, and yet, and yet not letting that turn into an expectation, a fixed idea of what's going to happen, what you're going to get, when it's going to happen, how great it's going to be, what it's going to feel like. And all of that stuff, the sort of fleshing out of our dreams, right? Which for a practitioner, you're already in trouble, right? Because all of those ideas becomes what we're actually sitting with and waiting for. Meanwhile, there's an actual reality in front of us that we're missing. And we'll never get to that because that's a fantasy. Dogen says, such activity makes birth holy birth and death holy death. Actualized just so at this moment, this activity is neither large nor small. It's not immeasurable nor measurable. It's not remote nor near. It is undivided activity right now. And really, that is a very powerful and succinct instruction in how to practice. For how to realize self-nature. Here and now, in this breath, this koan, this awareness, there is nothing but this breath, this koan, this awareness. In this walking meditation, there is nothing but walking meditation actualized. And in that moment, it's not large or small. It's not measurable or immeasurable. 
It's not near or remote. You're not measuring it. You're not distant from it. It is actualized, made real. Or it's made separate. We stand back, we look, we measure, we judge, we evaluate. And in that, what is large and vast and boundless and free becomes very small and confined. So Dawu says, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. Jean Wan says, why won't you say? And Dawu says, I won't say. I won't say. Now, of course, the, the, the sort of obvious way to understand that is there's an answer, but he's not telling him. He won't say what the answer is. Why? Why is he holding back? One of the vows of the teacher, beginning with the Buddha, is not to be closed-fisted. In other words, open the hand and offer everything. Don't hold anything back. So Dawu is not holding something back. He's responding directly to Jianwan's question. I won't say, I won't say. The footnote says, even the Buddha in his 47 years of teaching wouldn't say. And then it goes on to say that Jean-Wan couldn't understand at the time. But then later he heard this section of the Avnikateshvara, chapter of the Lotus Sutra, where it said, for one who has attained the monastic body, Avnikateshvara appears in the monastic's body and expounds the Dharma. And at this, Jean-Wan came to realization. And it's interesting that when someone has a genuine, deep, question, something they want to understand, something that they want to know. It doesn't end when the present, it doesn't end when this conversation with this teacher is over. The student carries it with them. It's a living thing. It lives in them. It's still got life. And so in that moment, later, we don't know, a month later, a year later, five years later, his mind is still, it's still in his heart. He's wondering, he wants to know. And at that moment, he understands. The koans are like that. Having doubt, spiritual doubt, is like that. That's why the guardian council, when they meet with prospective students, that's, in essence, what they're, one of the most important things they're asking, is, is there bodhicitta in this person? Why? What motivates you to practice? Why is that important? Because when we understand that, that's a tremendous amount of strength and vitality. And what about the moments when you're not motivated? So you're sitting there for the guardian council, you're motivated, right? Because you've done what you needed to do to be sitting there. And you want to enter. But what about when you're not motivated? When practice seems dull and distant and inconvenient and there are other things that really you need to take care of. And you'll deal with it. You'll get around to it later. You promise. What about then? What is the motivation then? That's the importance of raising bodhicitta. Both so that we have touched that place within ourselves that doesn't actually go away. And so that we begin to develop the capacity to raise bodhicitta. So that when you feel a little cold... You're out in the desert and it's very dry. 
and it seems like a good idea not to practice, you have a way in again. Because that desert's there. Right? Any practitioner who practices for any amount of time is going to go through periods where it ain't easy. And those are actually, can be very important times in a person's path. So here in those words in the Lotus Sutra, and there's a whole section of the Lotus Sutra that is with, deals with Kenon, the perceiver of the world's sounds, the one who hears the cries of the world, the Bodhisattva of great compassion. And the question is, how does, the Bodhi, how does this Bodhisattva of compassion show up in the world? And so there's a long passion that says, if there are living beings who need someone in the body of a Buddha or in the body of a householder, in the body of a monastic, in the body of a layperson, in the body of a child, in the body of a dragon, in the body of a dog, then she shows up in that very form as a compassionate being and alleviates their suffering. You know how it is with animals that you love and love you and when you're sick, they might come and sit on your bed. How do they know that? That's Avalokitejvara, appearing in that form. And so hearing this, that when the body of a monastic, Jean Juan was a monastic, is needed, she shows up as a monastic. And in that moment, is it alive or dead? Became real, became actualized. Footnote says, within death he has found life. But tell me, what did he realize? And so when we talk about the spiritual death, it's the death of the idea of self and other, of enlightened and delusion, of success and failure. All of the ideas we base so much of our lives upon. And when we invest those ideas with absoluteness, then we have already invested ourselves as having absoluteness. You are a good person. You are not a good person. And you know, if these persistent teachings on dualities, life or death, self or other, heaven or hell, right or wrong, that are so consistently showing up in the teachings, if those seem abstract or distant from your life, O practitioner of the way, being on a path of examination and inquiry, Examine any moment where you are uncomfortable. Impatient, irritated, annoyed, sorrowful, sad, self-doubting, angry, fearful. See in those moments the two. And there will generally be a multitude of twos. (laughs) Because there are all kinds of dualities. But in that moment, see what is and what is not. What do you want and what have you got? Where are you and where is it or they? It's said that at the moment John Juan was realized, he said, at the time I was wrongly suspicious of my late teacher. How was I to know this was not a matter of words and phrases? What? How many times have you heard that? 
right? <laughs> I mean, that's like the, one of the first things we hear in coming into the Dharma practice. And yet, it's as though we're hearing it for the first time. Oh, why did you tell me? That it cannot, is not a matter of words and phrases, cannot be conveyed in words and phrases. So when it is conveyed, and we're, we don't yet understand what that really means, we don't hear it, or we hear it in a particular way, which usually is some fraction or some semblance of what it actually means. And then there's a moment of direct encounter where we realize, oh, this is what you've been saying all along. Using words that reach the limit of words and ideas. And Buddhism teaches that the reality of death, the inevitability of death, the immediacy of death, is something that is in a tremendous teaching and opportunity for understanding, for immediacy, for, th for that reality to not be distant and remote. And to help it put everything into perspective, or many things in pers into perspective. To lay bare the inability of words and ideas and our own whatever, <laughs> to create distance once you see as suffering even the basic bits that make up everything. And so this great matter of birth and death, alive or dead, Dao was saying, I won't say, I won't say. He's telling him. He's directly pointing. He's actualizing in that moment the reality that Jean Wan is seeking Jean Wan can't yet see it. And that's fine. That's why it became a koan. That when we don't, when we encounter a teaching that we don't yet understand, as Dogen says, we're just meeting the limit of our own ability to understand. That's all. That's all it means. And that limit is a movable thing. It's a, it's a thing that has actually no substance at all. So rather than getting frustrated or annoyed or insecure, self-doubting, I can't do this, I'm no good, it'll take forever, blah, blah, blah. I remember the various times when I would go into Dinaroshi and in one way or another say, I'm not making any progress, this is going to take forever. And he would just like, <sighs> again. Right, not just because he was hearing it from me, but he was hearing it from maybe a few others. <laughs> That's why I said in the poem, even though the Buddha made it abundantly clear and generations and generations of practitioners have verified it again and again, still disbelief rolls across the land. This dharma has everything to do with everything. It doesn't happen much anymore, thank goodness, but in the early years, sometimes, I don't know why it would have changed, but people would say, how has dharma practice, or how has the practice changed your life? And it's like, do you have another question? I don't know how to answer that question. There is no answer to that question. That when we're practicing nothing, goes unaffected. Nothing goes untouched. That's the point. 
to no longer segment and categorize and compartmentalize our lives. Let it touch everything. A question that used to come up a lot in the early years was, does Dharma practice address everything? Which is very often kind of a, a wrongly asked question, but I mean, it doesn't teach you history, it doesn't teach of, of the world, it doesn't teach you about evolution, it doesn't teach you how atoms work and neuroscience, and it doesn't teach you medicine. There are many things it doesn't teach you. But when we study those things, then we as practitioners can see the Dharma. That's why traditionally, it's taught that practitioners, um, often it's directed towards monastics, but that practitioners should really study life sciences. If you're going to read, read about life sciences, because, you, because that is verifying, affirming what the Dharma teaches through that particular arena. Why? Because it's about reality. It's about how things work. That's exactly what it should do. that it has everything to do with living at peace, at ease, without creating conflict, and within a world that is spinning and turning with greed and fear and anxiety and blame and hatred and violence. Because that's the world in which the Buddha Dharma has always been situated. And in each generation, there's just each generation's iteration of that. But it's also situated, situated within a world of compassion and kindness and good neighbors and simple actions of giving. That what it's really about is so that we can enjoy this spring morning the deepening green of the mountains, the joy of a home-cooked meal that's waiting for us, of having some time together in conversation, to not let those things be obscured by our entanglements, but also to not let those things obscure the great matter. In other words, to enjoy those things in such a way that they bring us in. Don't become distractions. Kenon takes on a variety of different forms and goes about the lands saving living beings, the Lotus Sutra says. This bodhisattva can bestow fearlessness on those who are fearful and pressing or difficult circumstances. This is why she is called the bestower of fearlessness. You should single-mindedly bring her to mind. This is the, the mudra that Mahapajapati has. It's the mudra that the image in the Doksan room has. Fearlessness. A bestower of fearlessness. What a wonderful gift hmm? to bring to others, to bring fearlessness to others. Which means to not, at the same time, to not bring those things which would create fear. And so we chant, Kanzeon, Kanon, Avalikiteshvara, at one with the Buddha. Wisdom and compassion are not separate. Related to all Buddhas in cause and effect, and to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, by practicing we are turning 
the tide of karma. Joyful, pure, eternal being. This morning mind is Kanzion. Evening mind is Kanzion. This very moment arises from none other than this mind. This very moment is never separate from this mind. Wisdom and compassion. And so we're in our last days of Ango, which is not a twilight, by the way. Mm -mm, mm -mm, Don't think that. No. It is a great um, life-giving fire that is burning. And so as we prepare to enter into our last session and bring this um, ango to a great and mighty roar, let us be grateful for this spring morning for a meal well cooked, for these teachings that have come down to us that are designed to get under your skin and bother you, to bother you awake, to bother you together. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.